to see all of you. This is going to be a thrilling time, and I'm going to feel like I wish I had more time, because uh, the book of Daniel is so, uh, so deep and rich and full, and uh, so relevant to this study of, of a Christian look at politics right now. Uh, it's really remarkable how timeless the Word of God is and how it speaks to every generation. What we're going to get as we look at the book of Daniel today, we're going to get, I hope, perspective. We're going to get perspective in reference to human governments, perspective in re uh, relationship to our involvement with government, um, that we understand that God is sovereign over the kingdoms of the earth. He rules over them actively. It's not a tiny detail that he's not aware of. And that God is actually using human governments to weave out a marvelous, complex, providential plan for His own glory and for the salvation of His people. And that we would then engage government properly, that we would not put our hope in governments, uh, that we would not be uh, overly elated or discouraged with the vicissitudes of government, the rise and fall of various parties or presidents or, or outcomes of various elections that we would not uh, be overly engaged or elated in those things. We see with Daniel, a man who is deeply involved in human government. Uh, he was the third highest ruler in two different kingdoms, in succeeding kingdoms. Um, and so that Christians can, believers, godly Men and women can actually be engaged in secular government. There's a role model for that. Uh, but there's a perspective, too, as we see there is a coming kingdom, kingdom of Jesus Christ, that will sweep away everything. And that we have a perspective on that. You're going to get all of that in the book of Daniel in the brief time that we have uh, to study. So I've given you, no, I did not do that artwork. That's pretty, pretty scary, isn't it, as you look at it. Uh, that's the vision of the four different beasts coming up out of the sea from Daniel 7. So we're going to just walk through this and uh, try to understand the book. Um, the context of Daniel is of the exile to Babylon. Daniel is one of the exiles. He's exiled as a very young man, maybe a teenager. Um, and the book uh, begins, Daniel 1, 1 and 2, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So there are some basic facts of the exile to Babylon, something the prophets had predicted. The reason for it is that the Jews uh, were violating the Mosaic covenant. They were violating the old covenant. They were going after false gods and goddesses. They were corrupting themselves. They were repeatedly warned by the prophets again and again. But then finally the time came where God did what he, he threatened in the Song of Moses that he would do before they ever came into the land. He said, let me tell you what's going to happen to you. And he predicted it, all of it in the book of Deuteronomy, said what would happen, and now he's fulfilling it. And the exile happened. And they lost sovereignty. They lost control over the promised land, political control. And they've, and to some degree, never fully gotten it back. And so these are what Jesus calls the times of the Gentiles, but it began here with the exile. Uh, we also have predicted in the book of Jeremiah the 70-year reign specifically of uh, Babylon. And how it says very plainly in Jeremiah 25, this whole country, that is Palestine, the, the promised land, will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations 
will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians for their guilt and will make it desolate forever. So that's the context. Jeremiah had said what was going to happen. He said to the Jews, you will serve him, his son, and his grandson. Very clear. Three generations. And then their time will come. And so that's where we're at, situated in, in, in history and time and space. This very thing, the restoration of the Jews after the exile of Babylon, was predicted by Jeremiah. Remember how God told Jeremiah to buy a plot of land? Apparently, Jewish real estate was selling at pennies on the dollar as the Babylonians were invading. Isn't that amazing? And so he was able to buy from a relative, buy, mind you, a piece of land. So even then, uh, one of Jeremiah's relatives was trying to make at least some money on this whole thing. Um, but it was amazing to Jeremiah that God would have him do it, but it was a symbol. Someday, Jews will again be able to buy and sell in the land, be able to plow and reap, and so it was a promise. And so you're all coming back. Um, it was prayed for. The desolation would end, and then it was fulfilled under Cyrus the Great, uh, the first king of the next empire, the Babylonians. Uh, it says in, in Daniel 1.21, Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus, and then this is uh, stated very clearly, clearly in 2 Chronicles 36, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. <clears throat> Excuse me, what that means is let him go up uh, back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. What's amazing there, though that's not Daniel, it definitely harmonizes what we learn in the book of Daniel. The Lord moved this pagan king, Cyrus the Great, to do this. And so this is the central thing. Now, if you look at the central message and messages of Daniel, I would say the central message of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of God over the rise and fall of the nations for the glory of his name, the establishment of his own kingdom, and <coughs> the benefit of his people. So keeping it simple, God is sovereign over politics. God is sovereign over the nations, all of them. He has his own purposes. He's building his own kingdom. And he is blessing his own people. That's, that's the message of Daniel. He, he, there's many sub-messages, and we'll get to that. But that's the central message. Now, if I could just pause in terms of our BFL class, why is that message beneficial to us? He's still doing it. Okay, anyone else? Still doing that, still raining. <clears throat> You're studying politics. It's a topic of great interest to me. Why is this theme so important? Paul says that what was written in former days is written for our instruction, so it's it's always relevant for us, and this seems particularly relevant for our view of political nations. Absolutely. All right, let's look at secondary messages. The main secondary message is the call to personal holiness, piety, and courage exemplified by Daniel and his friends. So we'll get into that more, but I see the basic two-part division in the book of Daniel. There are 12 chapters. Chapter 1 through 6 gives the context, political context, 
uh, two different nations uh, or empires, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, you get the context there, so you get a lot of context story. And you get a sense of what uh, tyrannical pagan reign looks like. Uh, you get all that. But the main, main idea is a character study of Daniel and, to a lesser degree, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what kind of people they were in that context. You get six chapters of that. So they're basically like court, court stories, stories of what it was like to be in the Babylonian court or in the Persian court, and the kinds of infighting that went on, the politics and all that. And what, what, was, what was Daniel like? What kind of person was he? And, and the, the desire, I'm sorry? Just that said he was devout. He was a devout, godly, godly man, holy man. We're going to see that. As the angel said to him, he was a man highly esteemed. And so, what kind of people ought we to be in the midst of all that? That's one of the, that's the first six chapters. Then the second six chapters are remarkable visions of the future of the Jews, and then through that portal, uh, the future of the whole world, from a political standpoint. So I would say that God gave to Isaiah the clearest vision of Christ, crucified and resurrection, you get in the Old Testament. But he gave to Daniel the clearest vision of the Jewish nation in history, what their history would be in the future, and the rise and fall of the nations. You get a, the clearest vision of that in Daniel. And so you have seven uh, chapters of remarkable, sometimes even grotesque, visions. See the uh, artwork on the cover of your BFL handout. Grotesque visions of beasts ripping flesh and eating and all this kind of thing. Um, you get these visions, and complex, even remarkably, staggeringly detailed prophecies. Daniel 11 is one of, the, one of the most marvelous chapters in the whole Old Testament. It comes to specific detailed prophecy. Well over a hundred specific prophecies about what would happen during the Greek era of reign, the Seleucid from the Ptolemies reigning over Palestine. Like, like I think there, there's 104 specific prophecies. Of even a minor part of history, which isn't in that, that major, after Alexander the Great was dead, before the Romans came, just these things are going to happen with the kings of the north, the kings of the south. That's God flexing his prophetic muscles, saying, I know everything that's going to happen before it happens. And so we'll look at that a little bit. But just the, uh, you get six chapters of character study, what kind of person or people should we be? And then six chapters of just how sovereign God is over pagan empires. That's how the whole thing breaks out. So as we look at secondary, the secondary themes, first of all, a call to personal holiness, piety, and courage, exemplified by Daniel. As the hymn, the old hymn put it, dare to be a Daniel. Um, the willingness to be holy and to stand firm. And I just tell you, we American Christians are going to need that more than ever before as we just see this decaying orbit uh, between Christianity and our surrounding culture, including politics. Um, we cannot stand firmly on any rock or anything. All of that's a sand. Christ and his kingdom, his word, that's where we stand. And so we have to have courage. We have to have the willingness to stand firm as Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Bethlehem did. Along with that, other secondary themes. Um, a third theme is the ability of God to predict the future. Just talked about that. Uh, it's good to know. All of this has been written in God's book before one of these days came to be. Just good to know that. A uh, fourth theme is the judgment of pagan kings who dominate the people of God but who refuse to repent. God judges them. He judges them for what they do with their power. We need to know that. Because they can do some damage. And they do damage. In the time while they're ruling, they can, act, they can seriously hurt people. They can kill people, and they do. But just to know that God sees everything and that he um, will judge rulers for what they do with their power. A fifth theme is a rare glimpse into the invisible spiritual world of angels and demons. 
So you get one of the clearest view of angelic power in the book of Daniel. You also get, uh, if you know how to read it, a view into <laughs> satanic or demonic power as well. And when it talks about the king of Persia, it gives a sense of not, I'm not going to go so far as some do with this idea of territorial spirits, but the idea that Satan has a direct hand in and influence in secular governments all over the world. Satan influences them, runs them. And so when Satan said to Jesus, the world has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to, it's not an idle boast. He does run this world at one level. You know God rules over him. But he does run the governments of this world in a lot of ways. And we need to see that, uh, the demonic side. The sixth scene is the relationship between the people of God and temporal governments. How is it for us while all that's going on? And there are lots of different answers to that. Temptation. People of God are tempted by these halls of power. Tempted with positions of power. All right? Tempted to betray our commitments. Uh, suffering. No doubt about it. Daniel 7 is very clear how these tyrannical pagan kings will rise up and crush the people of God. Right to the end. As a matter of fact, depending on how you read eschatology, this is what I believe. There will be a final human ruler, an antichrist, the Antichrist, who will rule over all the earth and will actively seek to crush the people of Christ and to kill them, and will kill many of them. So therefore, I've made the statement before, the overwhelming majority of, of those who will, in the end, have been martyred for Christ, for God, have not yet died. It's yet to come. And so it's a terrible future between the people of God and human governments. Uh, with the consummated final government, I think it's clearly predicted in the book of Daniel, uh, and so, great suffering. We are generally not the movers and shakers. We are generally the moved and shaken. Generally, we're like straw on tidal waves. But what's remarkable is when everything is wiped away or washed away, we're still standing. And the Lord will give to the meek the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We will be standing in all of the wicked power uh, mongers will be gone. And Christ in his kingdom, he will be the king over kings and the Lord over lesser lords forever. And there will be lesser kings and lesser lords on, on, in the new heaven, new earth. We will have uh, realms to rule over. We will have uh, authority, but all of us will use whatever authority we have in the new heaven, new earth in open submission to the true king. So idolatrous, pagan challenge to God the king will be over. So that's where we're heading, and those are the things. If you go to the very back of my handout, um, I wrote um, some lessons. So I want to jump to the lessons now, because the overview of Daniel could take, I could do it in five hours or longer, because I love this book so much. There's so many details, and there just won't be time. But if you look at the lessons that I called out, wrote these a few days ago, uh, just some lessons. That I, and there are more lessons that have popped in my mind since I wrote these. But I'm just trying to take the timeless message of Daniel and situate it right here for us in 2019. So first of all, make the kingdom of Christ your top priority. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not any political agenda or political party or whatever. Seek first above all things the kingdom of Christ. Top priority. So therefore, know the real story of all of this. Know the story of history. The history is God is playing playing history like he's a, a master pianist and he wrote the music. He wrote the music, now he's playing. And that's, it's good to know that. And what is it? His glory in the salvation of the elect. That's what this is all about. Habakkuk 2 tells the same story. 
As Habakkuk is all angry and frustrated over the wickedness he sees among the Jews in, in Jerusalem, and God says, I'm going to be wiping them all out and setting the Babylonians up instead, he's like, okay, wrong answer, God, I think. That doesn't seem to be the right thing. I don't know what you're doing. I'm going to stand and wait until you give me an answer. Habakkuk 2 is his answer. It's the exact same stuff as the book of Daniel. The nations are going to rise and fall one after the other, but woe to those that build an empire by unjust gain and by uh, murder. Uh, woe to him. He doesn't say who, just if the shoe fits where. If that's who you are, I'm going to destroy you. <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm going to be building my own kingdom, and the earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And meanwhile, the righteous will live by faith. And the Apostle Paul took that as live eternally. Find salvation through faith in Christ. So what's really going on is individuals are finding salvation in Christ while all these empires are rising and falling. And God is building his empire every generation, little by little, until it's unveiled in glory. So Habakkuk 2 tells the exact same story. And it's, it's quite marvelous. So make the kingdom of Christ your top priority. Rest in the absolute sovereignty of God over governments. Do not be afraid of what you see in the, uh, in the political arena, in any nation. Not just our own nation, but other nations that rise up and become powerful in, in godless nations. Do not be afraid of, you know... 21st century being the century of China or anything. Don't, don't worry about any of that. God rules over all. The, you know how many, how many nations and empires there have been? How's Spain doing after the uh, Armada sank? Not too well. All right? They were dominating with all the gold from the New World and all the slavery they imported down in Central and South America and all that. And they were the dominant force until their, their um, Armada went to the bottom of the English Channel. And, and just one nation after the other rises and falls. So, trust in the sovereignty of God. Understand the corrupting lust for power and governmental leaders. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. We see this in this book, Daniel. And so don't be surprised when, when political leaders are corrupt. They're corrupted by their power. All right? Um, pray in, delight in and pray for the Daniels that God does raise up in government. All over the world, there are genuinely converted people who are salt and light and positioned strategically to do great things maybe even at the highest level of a nation. It happens from time to time, doesn't often happen. But from time to time, some nations do have genuinely converted people who try to use their political power and their brief time of influence for the glory of God. It does happen. It's not common. More commonly, you have godly uh, men and women that are counselors to the king, um, to the leader, and they're able to be salt and light and to thwart evil purposes and bills and legislations and, and have a role to play going on right now in America and in other nations around the world. And so we should be thankful for that. We should delight in that. We should pray for them to be courageous and bold and to do their work well. And next point is you might be one of those people. It could be a, a calling that you have to get involved in government or in the legal system in some way and make a difference. That could be your calling. Not many of us would do that, but that's, uh, it, it's possible uh, for us to do that. Uh, don't be surprised when governments around the world crush the godly. Don't act like you have no idea what's going on. This has ha happened from the very beginning. It's going to happen in every generation. Our brothers and sisters will die. They're dying now. They will have their freedom taken away from them. They will have their possessions taken away. We don't face that right now, but we, our children, grandchildren may fa face that in this country. Don't be surprised if something strange were happening, Peter says. This is what governments do. And it's going to be worse at the end. So it's not going to get better. So don't be surprised. Pray for leaders to be converted and rule justly. I believe 
don't know for 100% certain, but I believe that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. I believe that Daniel evangelized him. I believe that Daniel won him over. He's openly trying in Daniel chapter uh, 4. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your wickedness by doing what is right to the oppressed. Wow. Imagine saying that to Nebuchadnezzar. He said, I think, a lot more than that behind the scenes. And so therefore, at the end, when Nebuchadnezzar, when his mind is changed back from that of an animal to a human, he praises the sovereign God and thanks him for putting him in power. He acts like a converted person, talks like a converted person. The heart of an animal is taken from him, the heart of a man is given to him, as in Daniel 7. He's up on his feet and acting like a human in the image of God. So, whether he is or isn't, I hope he's there. If so, I'll look forward to having all kinds of conversations with him. We'll have plenty of time in heaven, so we'll talk about all that. And so, therefore, we are commanded in 1 Timothy chapter 2 to pray for governmental leaders. Pray that they would be converted. And if they're not converted, pray that their, their decisions would be channeled and controlled and, and used for the glory of God. And if they will not do that, pray that they would be removed from power. So these are things we can be praying for, Daniel did it. And then don't think too highly or too lowly of human government. Don't trust in those human governments. So that's what I want to say about politics. Now let's get to Daniel. All that's with Daniel in the background of my mind. What I want to do now for the next few minutes that we have is bring what Daniel that's in the background of my mind that I've studied for years. And I'll bring it to the forefront for all of you so you can see the verses that support all the things I've just said. All right, so let's dig in. Let's first of all look uh, like a 30,000 foot view, an overview of the book of Daniel. As I told you, I, in my view, it breaks into two, very neatly into two main sections. Chapters 1 through 6 and 7 through 12. It's, it's really very clear. Not every book is that clear. Most of them aren't. But this one's pretty clear. Alright? So first, we have a godly man serving an ungodly government. That's how I would sum that up. Daniel uh, 1 through 6. Or godly men who have Shadrach, Meshach, and Bidbo. So Daniel 1, Daniel's exiled with other Jews to Babylon. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those are their Jewish names. Uh, refuse to be defiled by Babylonian food. God blesses their commitment to personal holiness with exceptional qualities, wisdom, <coughs> discernment, uh, just mental skills that enable them to rule well, govern well, as lower-level officials. So he gives them that, and they rise in the Babylonian government, and to Daniel is given a special ability to interpret dreams, which is going to come in really handy in the next chapter. Uh, because in the next chapter, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, first dream in the book, and uh, he really, really, really wants to know what that dream means, but he doesn't trust all of his dream interpreters. He did it for a living. Um, and they had all kinds of systems of dream interpretations, and he, he wanted to throw all of them you know, over a cliff uh, or in a, in a fiery furnace or something like that. He had no trust for them. So he said, here's what you need to do. You need to tell me what my dream was, then I'll let you interpret it. Well, I mean, you can do that. So he's asking for a miracle, no one can do it, and so he orders that all of the wise men of Babylon be rounded up and killed. Daniel goes and asks for time, the very thing that the other counselors were not given. But Daniel's given time. They spend the night fasting and praying, and God gives him a vision. The vision's amazing. Breathtaking. Really, of the rise and fall of empires one after the other. And so he has a, a dream of a, of a statue with a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. And these represent succeeding empires one after the other, the rise and fall of the world. And so we're, we're going to circle back and talk about that because what ends up happening is a kingdom set up but not by human hands, the kingdom of Christ, sweeps all of that away and lasts forever. And so what, what an answer. 
bigger even than being able to tell a king what his dream was and interpret it. It's bigger than that. It's the big story for all of us. These empires are going to come and go. And so, Daniel chapter 2. Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar responds by making a statue that's olive gold from head to toe. Alright, I find that interesting. He's like, no, there's not going to be anyone after me. I'm in. And just the arrogance, the self-worship, commands that all of his counselors and his, his uh, political leaders there in, in um, Babylon fall down and worship this statue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will not. Daniel's not in view at all. I don't know why. Um, I don't think he bowed down and worshiped. Just, he's just not mentioned in the chapter. And so he, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah, refuse to bow down. They're thrown in the fire furnace. Uh, but God rescues them. And Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is getting a clear vision of the great power of God to deliver. When he arrogantly says, what God will be able to rescue from my hand, God shows him. I can rescue anybody from anybody's hand at any time. It is also a terrifying warning because the picture of hell is of a fiery furnace that lasts forever. And if God will not rescue you from his own hand, who can rescue you from God's hand? If God throws you into hell, how can you get out? And the answer is you can't. So you really need to fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not fear governments. Do not fear what people can do to the body. And after that, nothing more. And so there is a picture of hell in, in, in Daniel chapter 3, but also of God's power to deliver. And uh, so the Son of Man, the Son of God, is there in the midst of that rescuing Hananiah, um, Michelle, and Azariah from the fire Daniel 3. Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar's second dream of a great mighty tree, fruitful with all the tree, the beasts of the field, nest, uh, or under its... Uh, uh, under its shade, birds nesting in its branches, it represents Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. The command is given to cut it down and change his mind from that of a, of a human to that of an animal. So there's two different images, one of a tree that gets cut down, the other of a person who gets changed into an animal, and that second is much more literalistic. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And so it shows the absolute power of God to raise individuals up and make them kings. And that's the lesson. That's what Nebuchadnezzar should have known. That you may know that the Most High is, is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whoever he chooses and sets over them the lowliest of men. That's you. Secondly, we see God's direct control over human brains. Now, whatever that does to your theology, and however you want to wrestle with free will or God's sovereignty, wrestle away. But that's the text. God can change a human mind into that of an animal and can change it back. He has that kind of power. Also remarkably, although it's not noted in the text, it's still true, the vacated throne was not filled by anyone during those seven years. Because God wanted Nebuchadnezzar in that throne after he learned his lesson. I really think God used Daniel to keep that throne vacated for those seven years. Quite remarkable. But when he came back, and the end of Daniel 4 is one of the great sections of worship in the entire Bible. It's really quite remarkable. And it's written by a pagan king who I think at that point was no longer a pagan. Daniel 5, along comes Nebuchadnezzar's grand, grandson, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is nothing like his grandfather, nowhere near as capable. This happens. Raised in soft luxury, raised in self-indulgence, without any of his grandfather's skills, without any of his political acumen or his military power, nothing. He's just a soft feast, feaster and, and drinker. And you can tell that Daniel has zero respect for him. And so at Belshazzar's feast, that's it. That's the last night of the Babylonian Empire. It falls that very night. And so the writing on the wall becomes a picture of, of all of these empires. They all have writing on the wall. They're all limited. They're all going to fall. That's Daniel 2. They're all going to end up like chaff on the threshing floor and the wind's going to blow them away. 
So Daniel 5. Daniel 6, we're in a new kingdom now. One of the most remarkable things that's ever happened in the history of politics, in the history of government, is that Daniel went from being the third highest ruler in the Babylonian kingdom to the third highest ruler in the next kingdom, the conquering kingdom. That never happens. What happens to all the old rulers when the new kingdom comes in? Back then, anyway. They're all dead. No doubt about it. But God sovereignly ordained that Daniel would rule in both of those kingdoms. And he did his work so well that Darius was planning on putting him effectively under the whole kingdom, under his own reign. And the others got jealous and wanted to kill him, but they couldn't find anything wrong with him. All he did was work hard all day. I think the guy was like working 18-hour days. Extremely good at what he did. And so this, again, is a picture of how you can be really skillful in politics for the glory of God. You can work hard. It's a good picture of work ethic anyway. And the only thing they could find wrong with Daniel is three times a day he had a quiet time. So don't tell me you're too busy for your quiet time. You're not busier than Daniel. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed just as he had done before. That's what it says in Daniel 6.3. And for the sake of his quiet time they threw him in lion's den. But God delivered him like he had delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And sent a clear message to the Persian Empire that there is a sovereign king who rules. So that's Daniel 1-6. through six. What kind of person ought you to be? Do you like Daniel? That's, that's the message. Now, Daniel 7 through 12, we have in Daniel 7, the four great beasts of the sea, one of them after the other, each representing empires, human empires. Because they are so mindless and carnivorous and terrifying, it just shows you the essential demonic nature of these pagan kingdoms. They are essentially evil. They're essentially demonic. Again, I'm not saying there are not Christians or believers in the midst of them. Daniel was. But they're like beasts. And so in Revelation 13, when the Antichrist is called the beast from the sea, it's coming right up out of Daniel 7. So these beasts come one after the other, and uh, in the middle of it, the greatest vision of the deity of Christ in the Old Testament, the Son of Man vision in Daniel 7, right in the middle of that, the court is seated, sovereign rules, a river of fire comes from the throne, God rules over these empires, and when he says it's time to end, it's over. And so he establishes instead the Son of Man, who is not the Ancient of Days there in that. He is not God the Father. He is the Son of Man. But he is given sovereign power and rulership. It's the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. God the Father gave it to Jesus. And Jesus is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The great question for modern Judaism is, who is the Son of Man in the Daniel 7 vision? We all know who he is. He is human. He is the Son of Man. He is worshipped. And so, like God. So only Trinitarian theology can understand that as Daniel 7. But it's in the context of the rise and fall of the, of the nations, one after the other. And a specific and clear prophecy that the saints will receive the kingdom. So it's not just that Jesus receives the kingdom, but the saints, plural, receive it and rule. And so the clearest sense, when I, when I said that we will have authority in the new heaven, new earth, and dominions, and things to do, it comes from specific statements in Daniel 7. But then it says, and all rulers will serve and worship him. So he will truly be, in the new heaven, new earth, the king over lesser kings and the lord over lesser lords. And none of them will be vying for his throne like Satan did. We're not trying to rise up and topple him. We're done with all that. He learned what happened. And now we're just content to let him be the king over everything. And we have lesser domains in the new heaven, new earth. Daniel 7. Daniel 8 is the ram and the goats, the picture of the rise of Alexander the Great. So after the Medo-Persian Empire, the next empire comes along. It's the Greek Empire. And so we have a clear 
remarkable prediction of Alexander the Great, the horn on the goat that comes across amazing speed, smashes into the, uh, uh, the I think the, the goat comes and defeats the ram, ironically, and destroys him. And then the central horn becomes a great horn, in, but at the height of its power, it's cut off, and three or four, sorry, lesser rulers come and take its place. This is exactly what happened with, with uh, Alexander the Great. This prophecy was written before Alexander was born, several centuries before he was born. It's so clear about the rise of the Greek Empire under Alexander that modern liberal interpreters say it must have been written after the fact. <laughs> I just laugh at that. God can predict the future. And like I said, and Daniel is flexing his muscles, he's saying, yeah, Alexander the Great. He doesn't say Alexander the Great's coming, but he, he says the king of Greece is coming. I mean, come on. Um, and so along he comes, and at the height of his power, he's cut off. Age 32 or so, dies. And then along comes four of his generals. He didn't have any sons to give it to, so four generals take it, and they have less power. And that's exactly what happened Daniel chapter 8. Daniel 9, <clears throat> Daniel realizes that in the Persian Empire, the time has come. Seventy years has come. It's time, as far as he understands, for the Jews to be restored back to uh, the Promised Land. And so he prays, confesses sin, and all that. And then at the end of Daniel 9, we have one of the most remarkable predictions, uh, the 70 weeks of Daniel, which give a timetable. And uh, we could, I could spend two hours probably on the 70 weeks of Daniel alone. I think I have, all right? So I go on two journeys and the two different, uh, you know, uh, lessons I gave on that. Very complex prophecy, but he basically talks about the timetable for when the Messiah will come. And uh, just the uh, sovereign power of, the, of God in establishing the kingdom of Christ. Also, the very Jewish aspect of it. The fact that it seems pretty clear from that that the temple will be rebuilt and animal sacrifice will be reestablished, which I believe happens again at the end of the world, though not pleasing to God actually repulsive to God as it dishonors his son put an end to animal sacrifice but it really does sum up unbelieving Israel and it's kind of the final act of unbelieving Israel to try to establish the animal sacrificial system all over again shouldn't surprise us because the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and then apparently re-sewn or replaced because it went on for decades after Jesus died so that the Jews wanted to re-establish animal sacrifice and keep doing that because they didn't believe in Jesus makes perfect sense but it also is the final act of the drama, the salvation of Israel. Seventy weeks of Daniel. Daniel 10 is a vision of an angel, so overpowering, so breathtaking, so terrifying, that Daniel's on the ground, cannot get his breath. It's just an angel. And not even the most powerful angel, because he has trouble delivering the message. The king of Persia stops him for a long time, three weeks, and he needs some help to just deliver the message to Daniel. So it gives us a picture in the invisible spiritual realms of angels and demons that fight it out on roughly equal terms. Angels and demons, and sometimes demons even win, are able to thwart heavenly messengers so they can't give their mes message. Now, they can't stop Almighty God from doing what he wants, but it's quite remarkable, this idea of spiritual warfare. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel 11, I've already mentioned. I counted 104 specific predictions of the time of the Greek kings, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, who fought back and forth over Palestine. Uh, after Alexander the Great's death, but before the Roman Empire. Not a, one of the more famous sections of Jewish history, but the prophecies are so remarkable and so clear. All right, and then Daniel 12, the end. The end of all things. Where are we heading? Daniel himself says, I don't understand. And God says, don't worry about it. It's not for you. <laughs> Write it in the scroll and seal it up. It's for the time of the end. And there's some specific details in Daniel 12, specifically accounting of days, 1,290 days and 1,335 days, which are incomprehensible to us. 
they're not 1260 days, which would be a time times and a half a time or three and a half years, it's 1290 days. What's that? 1335 days. No idea. But what God said to Daniel is, it's not for you anyway. If you need to know, you'll know. Interesting. So if you're among that final generation, you may well need to know how many days are going to be until Jesus finally comes back and saves us. Jesus said, unless those days have been shortened, no one will survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. It's quite interesting. So that's the end. But you, Daniel, don't worry about it. You're going to die. You're going to go your way. And you'll rise glorious and shine like the sun forever. And so will all those who are wise, what that means is wise through faith in Christ. Future resurrection. That's Daniel 1 through 12. So that's pretty amazing. Does that sound relevant to politics? I think so. Now, I've just given you the 30,000 foot view. Now let's look at some actual verses. All right? So I said it's about the sovereignty of God. Let's see if it's actually said, it says so in the text. Well, it does. Someone read for us Daniel 2, 20 and 21. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are His. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. Probably, if you don't remember anything else, just remember that. <clears throat> and just if you have trouble like applying it, he sets up presidents and deposes them. Whatever you, prime ministers, whatever you want to, he rules. He sets them up and he deposes them. All right? Uh, that's uh, Daniel's praise after God revealed the dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He praises him. He's like, wow. Breathtaking. Daniel 4.17. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. That's the lesson of the tree that gets cut down. That's the point. Is that God raises up empires and protects people and provides for them and does all this sort of stuff. If they are tyrannical, he'll cut them down and judge them. All right, Daniel 4, 34 to 37. This is Nebuchadnezzar's praise for the Sovereign God. Someone read this for us. Being at that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sandals was restored. When I praised the Most High, I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does what pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have we done? At the same time that my standard was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble There's almost never a time that I hear those words that I'm not moved. But think what God can do in the heart of a tyrant like this man was. And to, to show him mercy, spare his life, reestablish him, and teach him this lesson. And I can tell you that even at that point, Nebuchadnezzar underestimated the words he was saying. He doesn't, he didn't even then understand how powerful God is and how merciful he is. And so to me, this is a, a very powerful lesson um, that God shows. He establishes kings and kingdoms and rules over them. Daniel 5, this is a different tone. Belshazzar, 
This is the inscription that was written by the uh, writing of writing on the wall. Many, many, Tekla Parson, this is what these words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought them to an end. You know how the psalmist said, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So it is with all the human rulers and the empires. They're all numbered. Your days are numbered. <clears throat> Tekla, you have been weighed in the scales and found wanting. You are a lightweight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You are light when it comes to glory, Belshazzar. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Belshazzar was slain. All right, Daniel 6, 26 and 27. He is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues, he saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Daniel 6. Daniel 7, 9 through 12. Thrones were set in place, the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. The horn is an antichrist figure, a ruler that sets himself up in direct defiance to God, the blasphemies. This, that role has been played again and again and again and again and again and again in history. The blasphemer. Hitler was one of them. They, they just, Stalin was like that. Mao was like this. There's just so many of these individuals that, that set themselves up and open their mouths and blaspheme. But this one in particular, the, I kept looking until the beast was slain, its body was destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Then this interesting statement, verse 12, the other beasts have been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. <laughs> Not like what happened, what Jeremiah said would happen to Egypt. You'll be stripped of your power and no longer be a great nation, but you'll be allowed to continue. And so it is now. Egypt is not among the great military dominator nations of the, of the earth. They're still, they're still Egyptians. So God does this sometimes. He strips empires and lets them continue. But they're just not powerful. At the end of that chapter, uh, the ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the early ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to uh, change the set times and the laws. Listen to these words. The saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. What does that mean? Well, they're going to suffer and die. You just, just picture that. This actually happens. There are real martyrs. There are really brothers and sisters incarcerated. They really are tortured. They really do suffer. It happens for a time. Just like he said to the church at Smyrna. Satan has demanded to, to have you and he'll have you for ten days. He says ten days there in, the, in Revelation 2. But the court will sit, its power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty and power and greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heavens will be handed over to the saints. Interesting statement. The people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. So it's not their kingdom, it's his kingdom, but they rule under him. And all rulers will worship and obey him. This is a great statement. So that's where I say that we will have, the saints will have authority and power in heaven to do certain spheres of domain, just like archangels or ruler angels have certain spheres of domain, etc. in the new heaven, new earth. Daniel 11.4, after he appeared, 
has appeared, his empire will be broken up in parcel toward the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. That's speaking directly of Alexander the Great. So in Daniel chapter 4. Remember I said Daniel 11. Sorry, Daniel 11. Daniel 11 um, is the Greek kings, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. They were the successors of Alexander the Great after he died. Uh, this is probably one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Daniel. It's not one of the more famous verses, but I just love it. These two kings, king of the north, king of the south, a Ptolemy and a Seleucid, they hated each other and they're scheming constantly against each other. Keep in mind that Greece was in general at war with itself before Alexander the Macedonian united them into one big army. But for the most part, they were broken up into city-states and fought each other. So someone read this for I love this verse, Daniel 11, 27. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. Friends, if you don't learn that about politics right now, <laughs> you just learned that. Is that going on? That's probably going on in Washington, D.C. right now. Oh, yeah. Unbelievable. The two kings will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail. Why? Because God has this whole thing measured out. I love that verse. So then, if you want to put that one up on your refrigerator and someone comes up and looks like, what is that? Let's say, well, that's, that's politics right there. All right, verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. So here is God's sovereign rule over wicked people. This particular one is an antichrist figure who, as you read in 2 Thessalonians 2, the antichrist, the man of sin, openly and directly challenges God by calling himself God. So this God delusion happens again and again with these tyrants where they think they are Christians and they are um, set themselves apart. So those are direct, that's, those are direct statements. Um, let's zero in on Daniel chapter 2. So skip ahead. This is uh, summarizing the, the whole thing. But um, <coughs> ah, let me get to Daniel. All right. So... And did all that. All right, look at the, the subtitle, The Purposes of God. Purposes of God. Sorry about that. I don't want to get to Daniel 2, but the purposes of God. The glory of his name. Daniel 4.34. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is the eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All right, Daniel chapter 5, 22 and 23. This is where Belshazzar failed. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself though you knew all this, namely what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, grandfather. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver, gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. What an incredible statement. As it says in the book of Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. So every ruler should know this and, and act like it. I should honor God who holds in his hand my life and my political power all my ways. He holds me in his hand. And I won't live another day if he doesn't will for me to live. And therefore, if I have this authority, it's a gift from him to use for his purposes and his glory. That's how they should all think. Some of them do. Some of them do. Most of them don't. 
And look what happened to Belshazzar when he didn't think like that. He died that very night. Alright, so God's purpose is the establishment of his own kingdom. So this is what happens. Remember the statue, the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, belly and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, feet partly iron, partly clay. Alright, what happens is, while he's watching, a stone is cut out, but not by human hands, and it strikes the statue on its feet of clay. And the entire statue comes down, like it's made of crystal. The whole thing just ends up like a pile of wreckage. And then a wind blows the entire pile away without leaving a trace. Think about that. But the rock that was cut out, but not by human hands, became larger and larger and became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Direct competition between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of men. And who wins? So look at this. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. The rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold pieces. So this is the kingdom of Christ. I think it is reasonable to see an already and not yet aspect to that vision. The kingdom is growing right now. It's happening right now. The, the rock is getting bigger and bigger right now. You just can't see it. It's like the yeast that the woman mixed into a large amount of flour until it permeated the whole batch of dough. You can't see the permeation. So this is the secret, quiet advance of the kingdom of Christ through evangelism, through missions, through the spread of the gospel. Wow, the tapestry of human history is going on right in front of us, but don't be deceived. What's really happening is the yeast is permeating the whole dough. But someday, there'll be a very clear, no doubt about it, recognizable display of power, the power of Christ, the King of Kings. You read about it in Revelation 19. When he comes back in front of the armies of heaven and directly ends all wicked human government forever. And that's the, the kingdoms and the kings will not be able to mistake what's happening then. You don't, won't, won't need faith to see it. There will be a pile, piles of dead bodies because Christ comes back with a sword coming out of his mouth and he's slaughtering people. Now, he doesn't literally have a sword coming out of his mouth, but when Jesus says, be dead, what happens to you? All right, you're instantly dead. So, that's why I think we're all going to be there, riding on, uh, you know, horses, I guess, or robed in white and, and all that, but you won't have any fighting to do. <laughs> you're like, well, I want to fight. Just watch what Jesus does. I mean, he's just going to take care of it. But read about it in Revelation 19. He's going to destroy all of those things. All right? Daniel 7, 13 and 14, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That is exactly the same as the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus didn't take anything or usurp anything that didn't rightly belong to him. He asked his Father, and his Father gave it to him. Psalm 2, Ask of me, says the Father to the Son. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your inheritance, the kings of the earth, your possession. He will rule them with an iron scepter. And so, he asks, the Father gives. All authority flows down from God the Father. So Jesus is the ultimate submissive Son of Man. And God gives him, because of his submissiveness, all authority in heaven and earth. All things are given to him. 
All right, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. That's clear deity. Only God is worshipped, and Jesus is worshipped. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. There's no kingdom after him. That's it. All right, and for the benefit of his people, as we already saw in verse 27, the sovereignty, power, and greatness of the kingdom of the whole high will be handed under the whole heavens will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. All right, so we have talked about uh, the holiness of Daniel, the resolution. You can look at the verses. I don't have time to support them, but they're there. Uh, again, again, God's ability to predict the future. I'm just going over the themes right here and the verses that support them. Judge, judgment on unrepentant kings. Um, Clearly, I love this, Daniel 4.31. Remember how Daniel's out, uh, it's not Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is out on the roof of his palace a year after he's been warned. Angels warned him in the dream, right? One year later, he's out there on his roof looking out over Babylon. And he is really impressed with what he's achieved. Remember? Is this not the great Babylon I have built for the display of my glory and my own splendor? That is a very bad thing to say. Especially when you've been warned about this very thing. Look what happens. The, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. I, I just feel like every ruler, every political leader on earth just needs to know how that can happen at any moment. An individual could have a stroke. Heart attack. Or just political processes. In some more unstable parts of the world, there could be, uh, you know, a, a rebellion that overthrows and topples you from your, your rule. So just like that, it can happen. All right, invisible world, a, a spiritual world of angels and demons. Read about that. Quite a remarkable vision. Um, the idea of the king of Persia, the phrase of Persia means that, that this demonic, you know, force, this, this ruler of Persia stops the godly, the holy angel from doing what he wanted to do for 21 days. So that's why I say that angels and demons battle it out on roughly equal terms. Sometimes the angels even lose. So it's like, I can't quite figure that out. Well, it's, it is, it is mysterious, but you know how it says in the book of James that even demons believe in God and they shudder? What that means is that God isn't immediately evident to them. They kind of have to believe that he exists. Do you see what I'm saying? So they're able to have some freedom and do amazing things and cause a lot of trouble. And God dispatches angels to block them to some degree, hinder them, sometimes conquer and push them back, whatever. But God is omnipotent. When he weighs in, it's over. You understand that. The gap between God and every creature is infinite. So he just chooses, it seems, when it comes to angels and demons, to be above it all and dispatch angels and let them do what they do. And the, and the story just keeps unfolding. It keeps moving ahead. It's quite remarkable. And so all that comes from uh, the book of Daniel. You can read about it. Uh, I like the um, uh, Daniel 12. You look at Daniel 12, 5 to 7. This is one of the little visions of angels you had here. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. He's at a river in Babylon. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, listen to this, who was above the waters of the river, like a hovercraft. All right? So there's this angel who's above the waters of the river, just floating there. How long will it be before these astonishing things were fulfilled? 
Then the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the, of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be for a time, times, and half a time. So in other words, that's how long it's going to last. Angels giving messages. It's really amazing. All right, the coming kingdom of Christ, we have um, covered that, I think. The terrifying future of human government, the glorious uh, future of uh, Christ's reign. The abomination of desolation, that phrase comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, I don't have time to get into it, but it's evidence of the demonic man of sin, the, uh, the antichrist figure, who uh, in some way sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. And it's interesting, Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then, if I could summarize the next four verses, run for your lives. You don't have time to get a cloak. You don't. Have, it's going to be hard for pregnant women and nursing mothers. It's horrible. So what's interesting about that interpretively is we are to look at current events and combine them with prophetic scripture. There is a combination of unfolding providential occurrences. When you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, then do X. So he's saying, Daniel spoke of it. You'll see an aspect of it fulfilled. Combine them and you'll know what to do. And generally what you do is find a cave somewhere. I mean, you're not going to be able to fight the Antichrist and his military power. You're just going to get slaughtered. If you get captured by the governmental leaders, then don't count your life so dear to you that you fail to confess Christ. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Revelation 12. And so they stood firm, they testified, and they died. And they're welcomed as martyrs into heaven. So if that's you, then stand firm and be courageous. Other than that, run for your life. And then it seems at the end of Daniel 12, count the days until Jesus returns. What's interesting about that is actually possible that there will be, in that final generation, a group, a very small group of people that will know exactly when Jesus is coming back. I find that interesting. So, we're out of time. I, I don't even know if I should ask, are there any questions? <laughs> I think there, there must be some. Ron, would you mind closing this?